Hello, my name is Dustin DeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, a very important episode, because I finally ask Will, have you ever been a communist, Will? It's a shame that I have to educate this committee in the basic freedoms uh, no, guaranteed in our constitution. No, answer the question, Will! <laughs> I, I, Justin, I believe I've answered it in my own way. Oh, so Will, you're talking like the Hollywood 10 that were brought before a show trial as part of the blacklist in 1947. Yes, ironically, not unlike one of the Stalinist purges that we see depicted in one of the films that we talked about this week. But that's for later. Yes, we are talking about the blacklist. I mean, we did an episode on Elia Kazan a couple weeks ago, so it seems only fair that we get to some of the people victimized by this shameful chapter in American history. Now, do you think this is something that's overblown, Will, considering that, you know, crackdowns, uh, people being blacklisted from jobs happens all the time, especially around this era, but we tend to focus specifically on the Hollywood version of it because it was so advertised and done to be a big show? I assume that what you are referring to to Justin is the dreaded cancel culture that is claiming so many of our greatest oh, comedians God. and newspaper columnists folks I'm just kidding I mean I don't necessarily think it's overblown I, I well I don't think it's overblown it's a, an incredible story an incredible chapter of American history I think that one reason that people like to talk about it I guess you could say it had a happy or a happy-ish ending you know eventually <laughs> the people who were a part of the blacklist are like oh I don't know about that maybe not maybe that's unfair to say but like if you're making the movie about Dalton Trumbo, it eventually ends with like Kirk Douglas saying, I'm putting his name on Spartacus. It ends with Otto Preminger letting him write whatever Otto Preminger movie it was. I forget. And also the people who participated in that are viewed as the heroes in some form of that story. They are not like the villains. It's an incredible story and an instructive story and, and a scary story when you think that after the Second World War, there were uh, five to ten years there where the United States government put pressure on the film institution to uh, weed out communist influence in its product. And the film industry essentially, almost to a man, went with it. There were some people early on who somewhat bravely advocated for freedom or liberty or what have you. Before we get to the whole blacklist stuff and, you know, communism's infection of the Hollywood system, we should talk about a movie. And why not talk about a little film called Mission to Moscow from 1943? Well, this is a beautiful film uh, directed by Michael Curtiz. Mr. Casablanca himself. The Warner Brothers director. And this is obviously a very prestige film starring Walter Houston. All the resources of the Hollywood studio system are in it. And it is a pro-Soviet movie. They're like, that's Stalin. He's a great guy. It tells the true story of one Joseph E. Davis, a lawyer and a distinguished member of society society who Roosevelt appointed to be America's ambassador to the Soviet Union. And Roosevelt appointed him in 1936, basically thinking if war breaks out in Europe, we need to have Russia on our side. And we need to send this guy over to figure out like, you know, test the waters. Because if Russia goes with Germany, then the whole Eastern Hemisphere is lost to us. And so the film is structured essentially as Walter Houston just wandering around Russia and meeting people who teach him the lesson of, wow, Russians just do it better. Their soldiers ski, their ballet is so great, 
Even women have responsibility in factories? What a great place and a great ally if we can just get them on our side. The most controversial part of this movie is that Walter Houston goes to the Stalin show trials, the ones that defended his purges. For those who don't know the history, a number of party leaders who were determined to be loyal to the exiled leader Trotsky were put on trial and, you know, basically executed shortly after. It was a, it was a big sham. And this movie defends those show trials. Uh oh, it's almost like Hollywood has bad politics. Like the fact that they kind of stood by Hitler's rise to power because they didn't want to damage their German box office for the longest time and would make sure that they had nothing that could insult him in their films, even though sometimes some really brave folks like the Three Stooges got to slip something by. You know what was often said in like official Hollywood correspondence or in the media about. You know, someone like Charlie Chaplin, for example, who made The Great Dictator before the United States entered the war. They would say that somebody like him was a premature (laughs) anti-fascist. The principles of communism, as they are said throughout the other movies that we watched, even this one, Mission to Moscow, they're positive. It's about helping people, taking down the elite that are hoarding power. When you say them out loud like that in these movies, of course, characters should be like, oh, yeah, this is good. Like, there's nothing wrong with this. Yeah, and when we get to My Son John, we'll talk about some of the ways that Hollywood movies uh, tried to reroute that problem. But Mission to Moscow, my God, this movie, it's like if you took one of those mystery science theater kitschy educational shorts from the 50s and you made it two hours long. It, there's just not a lot of drama there. I mean, Walter Houston is the rich man's John Carradine. What drama there is, it's all so dry it's like people in rooms moving pieces along kind of an imaginary chessboard and michael curtis tries to keep it moving by like going to different scenes having time jumps you see a whole bunch of stuff but it's not leading to anywhere the problem with the movie ultimately is it is pedagogical this is what we think of when we think of a stanley kramer movie i don't know i take a stanley kramer movie over this any day of the week the worst stanley kramer movie i've seen is better than this at least his movies had characters for god's sake yeah there's nothing here it is pure Pure propaganda that I feel like children were probably forced to go see by their class during World War II. And they're like, see, look, Russians are your friends until the tables turn. And they were like, "Uh oh, Russia can be a superpower. Communism. No, it's bad now. They're going to infiltrate the Hollywood system and it will poison people's minds. Now, I should point out this is a really big topic, but... What they really tried to take down were screenwriters, which is hilarious because screenwriters have no power in Hollywood. (laughs) They cannot even get proper credits on movies. They talk a lot about how difficult it was to create a screenwriter's guild that had some kind of power and also represented everybody, not just the people that were like in the beds of the Hollywood producers who, and the producers had all the power. And the producers, they were the worst of the worst. They hated any kind of interference. Just the idea of like, you want to be credited uh, correctly? No, you're dead. You're dead. You're never going to work in this town again. How dare you ask to be credited correctly? And every producer in the golden age of Hollywood was like that. Warner, Thalberg. Disney, of course. Of course. I mean, Disney took great joy in being a friendly witness at the Hollywood 10 trial at the beginning of it. To lay a little groundwork for how a movie like Mission to Moscow could come to exist. Of course, there was the Great Depression in the 1930s. As you can imagine, American interest in communism, the interest in just everyday lay America, in communism reached its peak in that decade. Uh, The United States 
recognized the Soviet Union in 1936, and there was a great increase in the latter part of the 30s in Communist Party membership. Seemed like a great force for social change. And then in the Second World War, America needed the Soviet Union as an ally, so it was fairly fashionable for a lot of celebrities to, like, there was a big rally at Madison Square Garden in the early days of America's involvement in the war. And we should point out that right before World War II hit, America was already winding up to take down communism because it was something that was threatening the work structure that they had. But World War II came along, so opinions changed before snapping right back afterwards. And at that rally at Madison Square Garden, Charlie Chaplin spoke. He did a big speech where he began, Comrades! Orson Welles spoke, and, you know, it's no coincidence that Orson Welles left the United States in 1947 and stayed abroad for the next 10 years. I mean, there were a lot of factors that played into that, but certainly his involvement in leftist political activities before the war would have played a role. I'm fascinated to know why the studios kind of backpedaled as quickly as they did, because originally when HUAC kind of got involved and HUAC, the House of Un-American Activities, got involved and they wanted to do these trials and bring these people to the public just, you know, to make a big deal out of it, the producers wanted none of it. They did not want Dalton Trumbo to go and like talk about being a communist. He was their top screenwriter. They wanted to keep him on the payroll. But then something snapped that after they did some preliminary hearings that were not public and the producers in the studio had said, listen, we're going to back our people. Just don't say anything. We do not want a blacklist. We don't want people telling us what to do. That was a big thing. They did not want people telling them what to do because they're in power. And if anybody tries to tell them that, then they get pissed off. And then there was a sudden just switch. And within like the first days, they called 19 people to start. They call them the Hollywood 10 because only 11 of them um, went to the stand publicly to testify at first. And the 11th one was Bertolt Breck. And he said, I've never been communist just so he could go to switzerland but he had made that deal with the other people that he was with they said okay you can do that so you can just get out of here get out of the country and not have to think about that yeah and the rest of them essentially formed a united front uh some of them were communists some of them flirted with communism in the 30s and then left it behind but they all had a common agreement that this was wrong it was unconstitutional and all of them would together try to mount a challenge to the house on american activities committee because the makeup of the supreme court was such at the time that they felt if anyone challenges the constitutionality of this there are enough liberal justices on the court that we're gonna win yeah that was their plan is that they were going to plead the first and then they would not specifically answer any questions that were asked of them they would also take the time to uh, read a prepared speech like all the friendly witnesses did before then but you know their problem was they thought that the legal system worked equally for everybody and no, it didn't. When they showed up, they asked them the question right away, would not let them speak. And then they held them in contempt because they wouldn't answer the question. And then, you know, it was the contempt charge that they thought they could win at the Supreme Court level. Unfortunately, two Supreme Court justices die, two conservative appointees are put on the court. God damn. It's almost like the Supreme Court thing is broken and it should be get gotten rid of completely. I agree. But anyway, the same day that they got their indictments for contempt, the heads of the major Hollywood studios got together and agreed that they would implement a new policy to uh, discharge all communists from their employ without pay, ban all communists from making films. And most people in the industry, even ones who were sympathetic, essentially said, um, okay, 
uh, not going to get involved any further. And in. the people that were sympathetic before the 10 went, you know, before the show trial were like Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall. So many people went and spoke in defense of the people that were going to have to be questioned. But the second they were put in contempt for, and sent to jail for that... Everybody changed their tune. They're like, oh, including people like Edward Dimitrik, the director and screenwriter, who was like, you know what? Uh, communism was bad. I uh, pushed that away. I made a mistake. During that period as well, the United States got involved in the Korean War, which was against communist forces. And so, you know, public opinion was definitely not on the communist side, even if they were trying to say, like, listen, this is illegal. They should not be able to persecute us based on any kind of political belief. So we should say who the Hollywood 10 were, and they're not any like big famous names that most people would recognize. So there's like Alva Bessie, Herbert Bieberman, Lester Cole, Edward Dimitrik, Ring Lardner Jr., John Howard Lawson, who was like, he was the big communist out and proud. He was the first to actually go to the stand. And then there was Albert Maltz, Samuel Ornitz, Adrian Scott, and Dalton Trumbo. I think people would probably recognize Dalton Trumbo if they're aware of this or they're big fans of the classic Jay Roach film, Trumbo. Well, Trumbo is famous because he was the one who like ended up breaking through. He was the one that wrote Spartacus and got on screen credit. Well, he was the one that like the studio loved. He was like one of their top screenwriters. People may know Ring Lardner Jr. a little bit because he wrote MASH later on and got an Academy Award for it. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, these guys, after they went through this experience, they were blacklisted. They had to go their separate ways. Me and Will watched a documentary, uh, Hollywood on Trial, and they even admit like some of them just got jobs like washing dishes or just anything else that could make money and then they could support themselves or their families. Some of them wrote screenplays uncredited or un or under different names. I believe did Dalton Trumbo not write Gun Crazy under a different name? He did. And he also wrote The Brave One under a different name. What was funny is there was like, you know, patsies for them that would take credit for their screenplays, like people who had wrote a couple screenplays here or there. And they would win sometimes Oscars for those screenplay and had to go accept an Oscar for something that they did not even write. And people may know that if they saw a little movie called The Front from 1976 starring Woody Allen. Well, we mentioned all of those names and the thing is that like it didn't end after that there were like 200 other people that were brought before this commission and if they uh, named any names or they denied any stuff there would be more people that would be blacklisted like the director of the front Martin Ritt and the writer of the front Walter Bernstein were two blacklisted people Zero Mostel who acted in the front was also blacklisted as were Lillian Hellman and Arthur Miller. And so, yeah, it was just a terrible situation all around by somebody who, when he started it, was later arrested for, like, tax fraud, I believe. <laughs> it's almost like the whole enterprise is flawed right from the beginning. The person that did it was corrupt from the get-go. Looking at the movies that were made in the 50s, um, you know, this is not my insight. This has been said by a lot of other people. But in the 30s, especially in the 30s during the Depression, and also to some extent in the 40s, there were a lot of movies about race relations, the downtrodden, socially conscious films. Uh, uh, Warner Brothers in particular made a lot of movies about like the working classes and that all disappeared in the 50s. Yeah, it's all about smiles, laughter, and just frivolousness. Uh, some of the films would seek to expose the danger lurking around the corner. Some of the films would say that maybe that danger is your own son. That film is My Son John from 1952, directed by the great Leo McCary, whose credits are a roll call of masterpieces, Make Way for Tomorrow, Duck Soup, An Affair to Remember, Ruggles of Red Gap, and he also made My Son John. Now, My Son John, famous anti-communist propaganda. Also, what a wild movie it is. So I'll 
briefly outline the plot. Helen Hayes and Dean Jagger play an all-American middle-class couple. They have three kids. Two of those kids, you know, they're going off to fight in Korea. They're they're good kids. But there's there's a third kid. You know, he's a kid who's been to university. And his name is John, and he's played by Robert Walker. And something's up with John. Like, he's not going to church Uh, He doesn't seem to take religion all that seriously. He keeps saying bizarre things like, uh, we may think that Columbus was a hero, but uh, imagine the people who were here in America before us. (laughs) But they didn't think of him as a hero so much. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is he questioning the fabric that America itself is built on? How dare he? And, you know, he keeps talking about wanting to create a more equal society. And it's funny, like this movie, everything John says sounds good. I agree with almost everything he says. And the performances by his parents from the get-go, they are so manic and like completely undone that it's like, oh yeah, John, maybe we'll be able to introduce a new way of life that will bring order to yours because seemingly you are unmoored from your expectations of doing speeches at the Legion. That does not bring you joy. You feel there's something missing. So there's another major character, Agent Stedman of the FBI, uh, played by Van Heflin. And he thinks that John may be part of a ring of spies. And, you know, he's talking to Helen Hayes and, uh, you know, Helen Hayes suspects that John might be a communist, but isn't sure. And I find it very funny that in this movie, like, this guy can be saying all of this very sensible stuff all the way through the movie, all this stuff that, you know, basically just sounds like liberal things that most liberal minded people would agree with isn't necessarily like communist, but it's like, well, you've got to be on your guard because anybody saying this, they might be a spy. They might be exposed to someone who is a traitor and therefore you don't have to take them seriously anymore. Therefore, everything they say is badly motivated. was surprised that they weren't like John is building a bomb or John is going to kill people or John has killed people because then that would put you more on the sides of pro USA instead of looking at these like I don't know completely deranged adult individuals like uh, John's dad is like drunk all the time at one point he like hits his son he's like you made me do it so this is why I think this movie is actually kind of good like I actually found it entertaining and moving and I mean McCary's a great director like he can't help himself he can't make just pure straight ahead propaganda yeah and it's just a beautiful piece of filmmaking a lot of the time there's this this is such a minor thing but there's a scene where John Robert Walker and Dean Jager are having a conversation and one of them walks away from the living room and goes into a hallway and looks down the hall at the mother and the mother sees him and then he walks back and then the camera just follows the guy as he's walking back and you see the mother going from room to room behind until she eventually perches sort of at a window behind the room. Uh, Sorry, I've lost everybody listening, but it was such a beautiful piece of camera movement, such a beautiful piece of visual storytelling that conveyed so much and just invades so much so complexly but made it look easy. I mean, that's the kind of thing that a great director can give you. And what's great about the movie is at the end, it completely swallows itself due to the death of Robert Walker in the middle of shooting, where it essentially turns into Game of Death. Some real Plan 9 from Outer Space stuff going on where the FBI agent is on the phone with Robert Walker and you see, like... Robert Walker superimposed into a shot and he's in a phone booth so you can't hear him talk. And like at the end, it ends with him doing a speech at a university 
And it's just a tape of him saying the speech. They must have gotten like a Robert Walker sound alike to do this, right? I find it interesting that the movie can't actually discredit any of John's ideas on their own merits because, well, yeah, everything he says is good. So it can't be about communism versus capitalism. It has to be about communism versus religion and the family unit. Like the idea of breaking away from something that your parents feels important to them and you throwing that away is throwing your parents away even if it's bad because like the mother says the only books i've ever needed were this cookbook and the bible and it's like oh man (laughs) and i have to admit like there's something moving about that like i think the movie kind of works on those terms because those are you know throwing away your parents is a powerful thing yeah but that's what you gotta do throw them in the garbage (laughs) oh absolutely (laughs) garbage people and it ends with uh john giving a speech that is like one that someone would give being held at gunpoint, being like, I completely turn away from the communist threat. I am now going back to my home planet. So we watched another film, though, an interesting film called Salt of the Earth from 1954, which is notable for having been made independently by blacklist victims. Yep. A bunch of filmmakers decided, hey, if they're going to treat us like communists, why don't we just make a communist movie? And that's what they did. They made a film about miners going on strike yeah the mexican workers and the anglo workers you know they're not making equal pay also health and safety issues are a big thing because in an out of control capitalist society things like uh, health and safety can easily start to fall away so there are a lot of conversations in this film it's quite didactic in its way i would say it is as well but i think the thing that surprised me because i kind of steered myself for like Oh, man, is this going to be like Russian propaganda, which is like, you know, stay in the past. Let's go. We are pure, which is why we will be able to defeat these things. But it did a fairly good job, I feel, at questioning its own belief is that these characters, even the ones that start the film leading the pack, are often proved that some of their beliefs are wrong. And they can prove that other people's beliefs are wrong as well. Well, what's interesting about the movie is, first of all, one of the major threads of it is the idea that the owners, the capitalists, they're keeping the workers divided on the grounds of race, right? So that's interesting. But then what the workers eventually start to realize is that they divide themselves uh, in terms of gender. So all of the women who are kind of like the backbone of their lives are second class citizens. And the men who are leading the strike at first, when the women say, hey, we'll take up your strike because, you know, a judge said workers can't strike and they can't stop us because we're not workers the men are like no 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 this will uh, you know emasculate us we don't want this to happen we'd rather go to jail than have the women defend us and eventually they reach a peace agreement the women are the ones that essentially like bring it to the end but through these characters and there's a lot of them and they're oftentimes telling you exactly what's happening on screen i thought that there was a good interplay and almost a good textbook that if you want to go on strike at this time this is what you can do to get through it like the different ways and the different techniques as well that the bosses are going to use to try to scare you off and allow the strike to just kind of dissipate yeah so i told you earlier that i found the movie a little bit boring although i will say that after watching mission to moscow i now know what boredom is i mean (laughs) salt of the earth has a lot more on its mind and as didactic as it is as tiring as it can get sometimes to listen to these characters have these Socratic dialogues with each other. At least they're having an interesting dialogue a lot of the time. Yeah, there's a conflict there. It's not a, this is the dogma or this is the theory 
accept it because it is right. And I think that is something that when you're making these kind of movies, you need to do. Now, would it have been fun if they had made like an action adventure picture with communist overtones? Yeah, probably. Maybe you could have gotten some play at some places because Salt of the Earth played nowhere. There was no real independent booking market that would allow them to like, you know, get this movie out there. I mean, it played in uh, communist China in 1960. I believe it was the only American film that was allowed to play. And uh, the filmmakers, they wanted it to be the first step towards a kind of, you know, collective of these movies. But the fact that the film could not get out there kind of stopped that short. And people in the movie who were like more professional actors, like the uh, star of the film, Rosora uh, Revultas. I know I'm saying that name incorrectly. I apologize. She was a Mexican actor and she was actually expelled from Mexico for a while due to appearing in this picture. Wow. That's what happens when you take uh, ideals that are good and people should like, but, you know, the people in charge are telling them, no, no, this is bad. They want to infect your world and they want to keep you down. Wait, you're already down? No, they keep you downer than that. Well, fortunately, all of this is in the past now. Oh, sounds like sarcasm. The blacklisted writers were eventually reintegrated back into society uh, and they found out, ultimately, that capitalism works. It was the best of all possible worlds and we're in it right now. Yep, that's right. We'll never have anything like this again. <laughs> you know, cancel culture, that's the real blacklist, right, Will? Oh, I, I was checking Twitter today. They were going after me jokes again. Uh, that's my Ricky Gervais impression. Wait, wait. Has Ricky Gervais done anything in the last five years? Oh, God. I mean, y you're not going to be interested in this, but I saw one of his stand-up specials that was just him, like, ranting about people being mad at him on Twitter. Ugh. Which, if I start doing that, by the way, please kill me, Justin. <laughs> I will. I have one gun with a bullet with your name on it. And if it ever happens, you won't even see me coming. I'll just... It's like that Wesley Snipes gift, just tears streaming down my face, the gun out. <laughs> well, Justin, do we have any letters? We do have letters. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Samuel Adams. And it goes, hey, Justin and Will, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and your excellent book, Moturn on Moturn. Thank you. More people should read that book. I love hearing that. I subscribed to the Patreon just before the pandemic hit, and I'm glad I've stuck around. In a world where everything and everyone seemed to be dulling, graying, and hunkering down, I could depend on two smart and curious Canadians to highlight the films and filmmakers that showed the world to be a place of terrifying beauty and variety. From the smeared haze of Vilmo Zygmunt cinematography to the urban rot of Simon Liang to the frost of forced enema in Sean Costello's water power. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I write to ask if you know any good books or essays that approach the subject of cinema by analyzing it through or in connection with with an unlikely separate discipline. I don't mean the usual suspects such as psychoanalysis, Marxism, or post-colonial studies, but rather the results of an author taking the subject of cinema and smashing it against another distinct or unlikely discipline, neuroscience, anthropology, or religion, for example, to get something special. I don't know if I'd wholly endorse philosopher Stanley Cavell's Pursuits of Happiness, but he uses analytical philosophy and classic Hollywood romantic comedies to explore concepts of love and knowing in interesting ways. I'd also be intrigued if there were filmmakers whose expert grasp of another skill you think uniquely informs their work. Besides Matt Farley, the greatest songwriter of all time. I, I have to admit that off the top of my head, I don't have any suggestions, although it is actually... A, a very interesting question. I mean, so this is terrible. The first thing I think of when he asked that are, you remember all those books that they used to have in the 2000s that are like Batman and philosophy? Oh, they still haunt um, bookstores at prices of like $50 because they're like supposed to be university textbooks. Oh, God. As to the second part, you know, a filmmaker whose other work informs uh, their craft. I mean, I don't know if I have a perfect answer to that, although I'm sure there are probably some like good silent era directors who probably started in other disciplines 
disciplines before becoming filmmakers. Well, pretty much every silent era director, right? <laughs> Sorry, I know he's a problematic filmmaker, but like I'm sure D.W. Griffith wasn't a wasn't a, a filmmaker before he became a filmmaker, you know. But I think someone like uh, Raoul Walsh, his films are very uh, defined by the kind of adventurous life that he led before he did that kind of stuff. And that's we oddly a filmmaker that people don't talk about that much. And he made a lot of movies too. Uh, as far as books that tackle that subject, none of them really come to mind because I feel that oftentimes when I see that subject brought out, it is a university textbook written in a very ac academic style. And like just flipping through it, I can feel my eyes start to glaze over already. I thought of something. I don't know if this entirely qualifies, but those books that Jay Hoberman writes where he's tackling like the history of the 1960s, the 70s and the 80s, like The Dream Life or Make My Day, where he uh, looks at the history of America in those decades, sort of through the films that were coming out and tracks certain currents that were going in the zeitgeist those are very compelling books i mean if if you can call that a clashing together of film and history yeah i can't really think of any book just staring at my shelf right now that would fit those qualifications i mean you know speaking of filmmakers that came to the um medium with prior careers, uh, people like Robert Flaherty brought a completely different context to what they were capturing because they had lived full lives before getting to that medium. The thing is that like now, filmmakers usually, they fall in love with film very early on and it's something that they always want to do so their lives are kind of defined by that. As opposed to before, a, a lot of times people fell into filmmaking because they thought that there was money to be made within that medium and what's this? I could make horror films or pornography and then make a couple of bucks off of it? And I think those films were much more different than the ones by like you know film fans like the movie brats that came in up through the 70s and started to redefine what cinema can be into the blockbuster era so yeah so that's bad right well no blockbusters well hey uh john peters the producer of such films as rain man and batman oh, that's right he was a hairdresser <laughs> And of course, Andy Milligan is the greatest dressmaker to filmmaker to ever exist. I'm sure that informs his art in some way. And so thanks very much for that letter. And our next one is from Rio Miller. And he goes, hey, Justin Will, I've recently been introduced to your podcast early in the year and haven't stopped listening to episodes daily. I love your deep dive into cinema, analyzing the basic of a filmmaker's body of work while also leaving enough room for viewers like me to explore on our own. After what feels like forever, I finally raised funds to get my micro-budget feature debut rolling. As I'm about to begin pre-production in the coming months, I wanted to get recommendations on micro-budget features that I can study. I know the famous ones, like She's Gotta Have It and Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. Wow, Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench is now a famous micro-budget feature? I guess it probably is, because it's got a famous director. From the director of La La Land. But seeing how you both have viewed more films than I have, according to Box. I was wondering if there were any obscure ones I should check out. Looking forward to your next episode, Rio. Well, Rio, I have two movies for you. Teddy Bomb, Impossible Horror. You knew that was <laughs> Yeah. Personal Space Invader. What would you say to that, Justin? I feel like you have more experience as a micro-budget filmmaker. Like, what were the movies that inspired you on your path and that you kind of drew from? God, I've talked about them so much, though. Evil Dead, El Mariachi. The issue I have is that, like, what is a micro-budget narrative film that has popped off and that has gotten attention that wasn't a gimmick, like Paranormal Activity or something like that recently? And I think that's really happened since like the Mumblecore era, but those movies weren't like breakthrough hits like something like Clerks was. I hate to plug our own product, but I do quite seriously recommend uh, reading the book Moturn on Moturn by me and Justin, because you will at least learn a lot about the challenges that befall independent filmmakers. Like, for example, you know, Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh often talk about 
like okay they've got their friends who are going to be in the movie they've got a cast and then the morning that the shooting starts uh oh um somebody doesn't want to be in the movie anymore so then you've got to figure out how to work around that yeah i think that the one tip i would have even more than like watching tons of micro budget movies is prepare yourself to fail and fail and fail and fail and making a movie putting it out there and getting very little attention that's gonna happen that's what the motorn guys did but they kept making movies they found the strengths to keep doing it and i think that's the hardest thing to learn or to even absorb and no book or movie will do it unless you read stuff like motorn motorn where you can like live through their miseries preparing yourself for your own so that is the best piece of advice that i could give here's what else i'll say when you've made your movie send it to us and i would also recommend uh reading a little book called b movies in the 90s and beyond written by jr bookwalter because he's a fascinating filmmaker is he made an epic on super eight with funding by sam raimi and then that led nowhere but he didn't give up and he kept making movies on VHS for less and less money, but they were still making it in video stores. And that's another example of just like passion and wanting to do it, you know, propelling that person to keep making movies. And now I just bought a really fancy box set of his VHS movies on Blu-ray. So, you know, it's a good example that as long as you stick to it for a while, it will eventually end in some kind of positive place. So thanks so much for your letter, Rio, and I wish you the best of luck while filming. So what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Well, Justin and I are big fans of Godzilla, and there's a new Godzilla movie out. So, of course, we decided to talk it over. We talked about the brand new film, Godzilla vs. Kong. And the big realization we make during the episode is that we've never actually really sat down and talked about King Kong. So we do a little bit on the episode. Check it out. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. $5 a month gets you that episode and everything that we've done before. So, Will, what are we doing next week? We are going back to the Hollywood studio era, towards the end of the Hollywood studio era, really and talking about one of those termite artists, one of those guys who inserted art into the crevices of Drek. We're talking about the two-fisted maker of B-grade action movies, Phil Carlson. <gasps> Mr. Walking Tall himself? We will probably be talking about his most famous movie, The Phoenix City Story. I would also love to watch and talk about his final film, Framed, starring Joe Don Baker. Yeah, and he's somebody who I definitely don't advise people watch all of Phil Carlson's work. Oh, you know, we did talk about one of his movies. We did a Patreon episode on The Wrecking Crew. (laughs) We did? Man, what a stinker that was. Oh, yeah. So that's what we'll be talking about next week. So until then, my name's Justin LeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here, interrupting briefly to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Lynn Olson, Patrick McClanahan, Beeman, Connor Prickett, Christopher Salt, Jerry Lally, Timothy Wolf, EBH, and Denise Fion. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. We wouldn't without your great support. And if you would also like to help us out, please leave a review on Apple Podcast or whatever podcast app that you use. It would be very much appreciated. It helps other people see the show, and it just fills us with joy. And finally, if you haven't shared the show, please do so. Pick a favorite episode, let people know why you listen. We just really appreciate it. And with that, 
We now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Well, I got Severin Films' new Blu-ray edition of Nosferatu in Venice, which is one of Klaus Kinski's final movies. I believe we did a Patreon episode on it. Yuck. Well, I was tempted to get it because it had a new 80-minute documentary. Severin Films does some really good documentaries on their discs. I, f- I forget what it's called. Kinski was a bad man. <laughs> Something like that. It was called Creation is Violent, Anecdotes from Kinski's Final Years. And it's all about the years from 1985 to 1991 when Klaus Kinski, who I'm sure listeners will be familiar with, the great German actor who is best known for having appeared in Werner Herzog's films, as well as dozens and dozens of exploitation movies. In those final years, he acted in a number of films, films like Crawl Space, Time Stalkers, uh, God, what else? Revenge of the Stolen Stars. Not his proudest work, frankly. And he was genuinely insane by that point in his life, you know, just could not hold it together. Like violently, too. This documentary is a series of anecdotes of people who worked with him on these movies talking, well, first of all, talking about how he would just disrupt the shooting like he would purposely not hit his marks he would purposely flub his lines he would show up late to the set just totally out of control no respect for any filmmakers no respect for any collaborators and secondly anytime a woman talks about him anytime there's a clip from one of the movies of him with with a woman it's almost as if you can almost hear the music of like the shark from jaws playing you know dun dun Dun, 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 dun. You know, something something bad is going to happen because not a very good nope, man. If he was still alive now, he should be in jail, right? That's about the long and short of it. And it was interesting to watch this documentary. I found the documentary very compelling. Like, how can you not? Like, it's amazing stories of this really crazy man doing really crazy things. Well, you've always been like a Kinski, like, super fan. Like, you had both versions of his biography on your shelf and stuff like that. I guess I was, and I guess I am a Kinski super fan in the sense that I, I love his work and I enjoy hearing stories about him. He's compelling. He's like, how can you not be compelled by this man? Uh, and he's in many movies that I like. But watching the documentary, did it uh, make you, like, reevaluate, especially, like, the later period of work that he did? You know, I wouldn't say it made me reevaluate it because when his daughter made those allegations about him within the last 10 years where she said that he abused her very seriously throughout her childhood i think i reevaluated him then when that came out i realized oh wait a minute like this is a really bad guy there's nothing there's nothing funny about this guy's behavior there's nothing kind of cool about it like i think for a lot of people, maybe of my generation, maybe of generations past, like you would hear the stories of Kinski and Herzog winding each other up. And it's like funny. You're like, Haha, whoa, what, you know, wild guys they were. Yeah, but I mean, this documentary is full of all these awful stories of how he would just actually assault women on the sets of these movies, including in Nosferatu in Venice scenes that are in the film. So it was interesting hearing all these stories, especially hearing the, these stories in light of the current moment when stuff like that in general is not viewed as being very funny anymore. But you can tell that the makers of the documentary, they feel that they have to kind of tie the movie up on some sort of positive note, end it in some upbeat way. So there's an acquaintance of Kinski, somebody who I guess got along with him somewhat while also thinking that he's crazy. He ends up with this observation like, well, you know, you gotta say this for Kinski, the man, he really he really threw himself into his art. He was pretty crazy. And uh, uh, sometimes you gotta swing for the fences. And uh, that's what makes a dynamic cinema. And it's like, 
yeah, um, that's right. In theory, he was trying to sexually assault people on the sets of these movies. I mean, that's not. Yeah, that's not swinging for the fences. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's something else. But I do think that it's good now that documentaries will tackle that subject head on, that it's not like, oh, you know, Kinski did a lot of wild stuff and it sounds like urban legends. And that a documentary is willing to take the time to let those people talk about their own experiences in a way that most documentarians who were making Blu-ray or DVD extras would kind of like avoid because it could damage what they're trying to sell. Yeah, you remember in My Best Fiend, Werner Herzog talks to, I think, Claudia Cardinale and Eva Metes in the film. And he says something like, we could only find two women who had anything nice to say about Kinski. Uh, here they are. And he interviews them. And... I guess he was trying to provide some balance in the film. Uh, some like, oh, well, here's, you may not know it, but he's he's a bit of a softy sometimes. He's got a sweet side. And now you watch that and think, okay, well, what, what did the other women say? Horrible stuff that's in the documentary that's on the Vampire and Venice disc. 